0: True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with ARENA Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of ARENA Holdings and its affiliates. The following episode may contain sensitive material, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, Please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes.
1: Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht and you're listening to Episode 52, Part 2, The Van Family Murders. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Melissa Walton and Philip Fisher, for their support on Patreon, as well as Ilka Zenskerali and Bronwyn Shaw for your support on PayPal. Thank you so much everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. We also have two new ways that you can support the show. You can head over to Audible and purchase the Krugerstorp Cult Killings by Jana Marks, which I narrated or you can get your health and beauty needs from King Online and get a 10% discount by using the code TCSA10 at checkout. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to help keep the show growing and improving. Last week, I started covering the Funbradar family murders, and I said that I was planning to cover the case in two parts. Well, I have no idea what I was thinking. Let's just say that this is part two, and this is definitely not going to be the final episode in this case. There is definitely going to be a part three. In part one of episode 52, we met the Van Breda family. Martin, Teresa, Rudy, Henry and Molly. We followed along as the family grew, moved to Australia and then moved back to South Africa. And then as part one closed out, we heard how on the morning of the 27th of January 2015, South Africa awoke to the news of the horrific murder of three of the family members. 16-year-old Molly van Breda had just moved her leg and the first police officer on the scene, Sergeant Adrian Kleinhans, has called for an ambulance. Two ambulances arrive at the scene not long after. Paramedics Victor Isaacs, Axel Muton, Marco Jones and Christian Kuchlenberg alight their vehicles and are guided upstairs by police officers. The men split up to assess the victims. Three shake their heads as they confirm that Martin, Teresa and Rudy have already succumbed to their horrific injuries. The medic working on Marley confirms he feels a pulse. It is thready and barely there, but she is alive. They check to ensure that there are no obstructions in her airway. Marley is breathing. The wound to her head is significant and an injury to her neck appears to have almost severed her jugular vein. The medics need to move mildly, but their instincts have told them that the scene also needs to be preserved as much as possible. One medic calls Sergeant Klein Hunts over and asks him if the position of the victims has been photographed. No, he says, the police photographer will only come in later. With multiple decades of experience between them, the medics advise Kleinhans to photograph the position of Miley and Teresa before they move the girl. This, they know, will be vital to a forensic reconstruction of the crime. Kleinhans photographs the victims with his cell phone, while paramedics stem the flow of blood and protect Miley's head wound from infection before placing her onto a stretcher. She lets out a deep moan, as they do. The medics carefully navigate the stairs with the stretcher. Pools of blood present slipping hazards, and their boots leave prints as they exit the scene. There is nothing they can do for the other three, and they'll later say that at that moment they had very little hope for the young girl on the stretcher. But she's alive and Mediclinic Stellenbosch is alerted to the incoming emergency. The facility is 5.9 kilometres from the estate, with sirens blaring in the morning traffic. They make it there in less than 10 minutes. Whether that will be soon enough remains to be seen. When the ambulance carrying Miley arrives at Stellenbosch Mediclinic, even the medical staff there held little hope For the survival of the girl. She was quite literally on the brink of death, and although surgery would be necessary to save her life, she first needed to be stabilised to do so. A neurosurgeon, Dr. Marius Small-Smith, is immediately called in to assess the situation. He knows that surgery is required, but has significant doubts that Marley will survive such a procedure. After some deliberation, he decides to take the chance and Marley's long blonde hair, now mottled with dry blood, is shaved off as she is prepared for a surgery that will not only increase her chances of survival but give her some quality of life if she does live. After the emergency surgery, Marley is transferred to a mediclinic in Somerset West where there's more advanced equipment and neurosurgeons on staff, the facility she is transferred to is just nine kilometres from her new school, Somerset College. At that moment, her school friends are sitting in class precisely where she should be, although we don't know how soon information would have filtered through. We do know that some of her schoolmates lived in Disalza estate. Some of them would surely have known. That something had happened in the estate that morning, and now, Mali's seat is empty, as she fights for her life nine kilometres away. An armed guard is placed at her door. One of the paramedics that treated Mali was interviewed in Heiskenowitz's series, Vare Levensdramas, about this case. His eyes messed up with tears as he talks about driving away from the hospital after Mali had been taken in for treatment and being overwhelmed by sadness at the situation. Back at the house, the remaining paramedics treat Precious Mkongani, the family's domestic worker who stumbled across the scene, for shock, and then medic Victor Isaacs is tasked with treating the remaining family member, Henry van Bredaar. Henry has a large bruise on the left-hand side of his forehead. It's oval in shape and approximately 36 by 46 millimetres in size. Under his left eye, there is a small light bruise, which is 8 by 25 millimetres in size. On his right shoulder, there is an 8 millimetre superficial cut. Just below this, on the right-hand side of his chest, There are two parallel scratch or light cut marks, 113mm and 132mm respectively. They are straight lines. On his left chest, there is a 46mm superficial cut that angles slightly downward. Next to this, there is a small puncture wound, which is 5 by 3 mm in size. There is almost no depth to the wound. A trickle of blood runs from this injury which is already dried by the time Isaac assesses it. On the left-hand side of Henry's abdomen there's a stab wound that is 17 by 7 millimetres in size and about 10 millimetres deep. There is the small amount of blood that's also run from this wound and has also dried. On his left arm, there are four superficial cuts which run parallel to one another. They are all thirty one millimeters long on his lower belly near his belly button, there is a small stab wound of six by three millimeters. There is no notable depth to this wound on the inside of his right thigh. There is a bruise and swelling which is eighteen by twenty millimeters. There were two abrasions on Henry's back, one about 60 millimeters long and the other about 200 millimeters long. There were also two accompanying scratches. Victor Isaacs covered the 10 millimeter deep stab wound and did not feel it necessary to treat any of the other wounds. He says that throughout his treatment of Henry, the young man was cooperative and answered questions, but did not offer any information unless it was asked of him. Isaacs shines a light into Henry's eyes, and his pupils do not contract in a normal way. He notes that this may be an indication of the presence of a substance in Henry's bloodstream. Henry's wounds are not cleaned at this time. This is because a crime has occurred, and officers will want to photograph his wounds. Blood is not drawn from Henry at this point, because there's absolutely no reason to do so. As Henry waits in the ambulance, the scene outside 12 Husker Street has become one of controlled chaos. Police investigators have arrived, forensics teams are waiting for the green light to enter the home, and of course, vans from the pathologist's office will arrive soon for the deceased family members too. When the first responding officers acknowledged the enormity of the crime they were dealing with, the night shift service leader Stellenbosch Police Station had been called to the scene. Constable Zuko Mato has set up a designated route through the house, which all paramedics and other personnel must follow. This is to reduce the likelihood that evidence will be damaged or contaminated. Now, Mato, realising that his shift is ending, prepares to do a handover to the day shift. He calls Colonel Dion Beneka and explains what has happened. Beneca rounds up a team and heads out to the estate. On the way, the team discusses what they know. The only consistent crimes they have been investigating in the area recently have been committed by the so-called Balaclava Gang. The group of robbers are known for breaking into houses, but the only time these criminals have known to be violent was to subdue victims. They've tied their victims up, but always left them alive. Could the gang have progressed to murder, they wonder? For Stellenbosch police, who already understand the magnitude of the crime they're dealing with, it is imperative that they get this investigation right. They have yet to shake the cloud that surrounded the investigation of their last high-profile murder a decade before. When university student Inga Lotz was brutally murdered in her Stellenbosch flat, the country held its breath as investigators tracked the culprit. And when finally a trial began, it became clear that the investigation had suffered from serious flaws. Fingers were pointed at Stellenbosch police, and the press had a field day. Inga Lotz's murder remains unsolved to this day. As he transported his team to the site, Bineke knew that this was going to be the next high-profile murder case in his jurisdiction, and they could not make the same mistakes. Bineke puts Mato in charge of the investigation and it is now his job to ensure that no one tampers with the scene, whether intentionally or accidentally. Warrant Officer Nicky Stain is called to the scene. He and his team have been involved in the Balaclava gang robbery investigation, and he wants to see if he can spot their M.O. anywhere in the crime. He's doubtful, but it's worth looking at all angles at this point. Reporters are starting to receive the news of the morning's events at D'Zolza, and they do their best to get as close as possible to the action. Security at the estates won't let them in, but they try alternate routes and eventually get close enough to get photographs of the growing crowd. A young blonde girl arrives and rushes to Henry's side. Her name is Bianca van der Vestazen and she's his girlfriend. She arrives after seeing several missed calls and messages he'd sent her that morning. Bianca is in Matric and lives in a hostel at school. It will emerge that she and Henry had met in January 2014 at Abra. It seems he'd been in South Africa with his family before they moved back there permanently. After he and Bianca met, Henry had to return to Australia, and Bianca had visited him there. The pair frequently chat on WhatsApp, but with Bianca living in a hostel and completing matric, the couple would likely have been unable to see one another very often during the week. Bianca is accompanied by a friend of Henry's, Alex Borshoff. Alex and Henry's fathers were business partners, They spent a good amount of time together, and Alex would say that Henry often visited him at his residence at Stellenbosch University. Alex describes Henry as a genius that is gifted at mathematics. All three young people are crying, and Borshof will later tell You magazine that it was very difficult to see his friend so overcome with emotion. The first family member of the De Toy and Funbradar clans to be advised of the horrific events that morning is Theresa's brother, Andre Datoy. When the Funbradar family had moved into the Desalza estate, Martin had given the front office Andre's contact details as their emergency contact, should anything go wrong. On the morning of the 27th of January 2015, Andre Datoy was likely getting ready for work, when he received the call on his cell phone from De Zalza's administrators. At first, had simply said that there'd been an incident at 12 Horska Street, and they asked him to attend. andrey confused about what sort of incident could require his immediate presence on a Tuesday morning, demanded more information. It was then that he was told what little the caller knew. There had been an attack on his family, There had been some fatalities, and there were some survivors. I cannot even imagine what it must have been like for Andre de Toy to arrive at his sister's home that day, and receive the horrific news that Martin, Teresa, and Rudy were dead, and Miley was barely clinging to life. Andre will be the one that must relay the news of his sister's death to their mother, Ninety-year-old Rico de Toy lives in a retirement home in Kempton Park, Gauteng. She has Alzheimer's and it takes several attempts from Andre to explain to the woman that her daughter, son-in-law and grandson have been murdered. Even then, he is unsure that she fully grasps the enormity of what has happened. Andre will have the unfortunate job of informing many family members about what has happened that day. Eventually he and his wife will set up a WhatsApp group to keep everyone abreast. The task of relaying the incoming information is just too large to attempt in portions. Of course police preliminarily question Henry about what happened on the scene. Everyone wants to know what happened. The short version of what Henry will tell police officers and we'll get into more details later, is that after he'd finished watching the One Piece series on his laptop in the early hours of that morning, and then listened to some music, he got up to go use the ensuite toilet in the bedroom he shared with his brother. He described sitting on the toilet, playing games on his phone. He says he hadn't closed the door completely, and it was then that he heard someone else in their bedroom. He stood up and looked through the gap between the door and the frame and saw a man with an axe attacking Rudy. The man wore a mask and gloves. Henry said that his father came running down the passage and tried to protect Rudy but the intruder had attacked Martin too. Shortly after Martin was attacked, Henry became aware that his sister and mother were trying to flee down the stairs And they too were attacked. Henry said that he had then tussled with the intruder who'd pulled out a knife and stabbed him. The man then fled down the stairs and Henry had run after him, axe in hand. He said that he'd tossed the axe at the fleeing intruder and it had hit the wall. He believes that he then fell on the stairs and was knocked unconscious. He regained consciousness three hours later And called emergency services. Police would find the murder weapon, a Lasher brand axe with the stickers from its purchase still attached, on the first level landing of the stairs. The axe appeared to be very new and had a light-colored wooden handle and a dark green painted head. The axe would become Exhibit 1 and its origins would become a matter of debate. The knife that Henry had mentioned he was attacked with was also recovered. It was found partially underneath Rudy's bed. It belonged to a set of knives owned by the Funbradar family. The drawer in which they were kept in the kitchen was standing slightly open when police arrived on the scene. The exposed blade of the knife is 18.3 centimetres long. As police took control of the scene, the crowd that had amassed outside the Funbradar home started to dissipate. Reporters hung around as long as they could, speaking to neighbors and whoever else would talk to them. Andre took Miley's dog Sasha with him back to his home in Valkleighen. He and his wife Sonya then went to Mediclinic Stellenbosch hoping to get an update on Miley's condition. They're told she has been moved to Farlighlen Mediclinic and when they go there, they're told that Molly's condition is critical and they're not allowed to see her. Henry would need to go to the police station to make a formal statement. He would also need to have his wounds photographed and attended to by a doctor. Henry is taken by police to Stellenbosch police station. He would later say that when he was put into the police vehicle, he was asked about the race of the attacker. But nothing else. He heard one policeman say to another that Marley was wide awake and talking. Henry says that he asked the policeman about her condition, but they wouldn't tell him anything else. Some policemen that interacted with Henry that day described him as reeking of alcohol. They also said that he'd been quite arrogant with them at first, but then when they'd mentioned that Marley was talking. His demeanour had allegedly changed. Henry denies that this is the case. Around 10.30am, Henry was taken by police to the district surgeon, Dr. Albertsa. His injuries were photographed and recorded in writing. The doctor also took cheek swabs for DNA analysis and scrapings from underneath his fingernails. Dr. Albertson noted that Henry was very quiet and she did not note any clinical signs of drug or al- or alcohol use. Henry would say that while he's being attended to by Dr. Albertser, he hears the policeman ask the doctor whether it's possible that the wounds are self-inflicted. He says that the doctor replied that she would see what she could do. After being examined by the district surgeon, Henry is taken to give his statement. He is still dressed only in his sleep shorts. Henry will later provide evidence around how he was treated during this interaction with police as a way of explaining why his initial statement would not completely line up with later retellings. He acknowledges that when he asked for cigarettes he was given some by the police, but he says that at some point a policeman arrived with food and drink for the officers but only gave Henry a bottle of Coke. He says that Colonel Beneka sat down at the table with him and claims that he told him that Marley was awake and talking and asked him whether her story would match his. Henry said that he was sure it would. Police deny that this interaction took place. From their standpoints, they say that Henry van Breda was their main witness, and they needed his information in order to seek suspects. Henry would complain that he'd been left in an office in which the air conditioning was set to cold, and he was visibly shivering. He says that at no time was he asked whether he'd like legal counsel present. This would not have been necessary, though, as he was not being questioned as a suspect. He was providing a witness statement. The statements he was eventually given to sign, he said was accurate for the most part, but one very important point was different. Henry would later say that there had been more than one attacker in the house that night. He claims that he told police this, and they didn't include it in the statement. He also says that police forced him to be specific about things like the race of the attackers when he told them that he was unsure. Henry signed the statement at around 2pm that afternoon. At some point, his girlfriend's mother delivered clothing to the police station for him. He says that by this time he was very hungry, as his last meal had been the night before, and he really just wanted to leave, so he ignored the inaccuracies in the statement, including the number of perpetrators, signed it and left. From the police station, Henry goes to Molly's boyfriend's house. The girl has been dating the red-headed fellow pupil from Somerset College, James Reed John, since she arrived back in South Africa in twenty fourteen. The young couple have become very close, and he now waits in agony to hear if his young love will survive. He and Henry have become friendly, so when he needs someone to collect him from the police station. James's mother does not think twice. André de Toy and his wife Sonia have also been waiting at James's house. After not being allowed to see Mali and also being denied access to Henry at the police station when they tried to see him, they decided to wait at James's house for him. André will later say that they did not speak much because Henry struggles to speak sometimes, so they just hugged the boy and sat with him for a while. A little later, Henry's girlfriend arrives at the house too. Henry's aunt, Sonya looks at the boy's wounds and suggests that perhaps he'll need stitches. The group sit in silence for a while, and then Andre and Sonya leave for home. Henry has decided to stay with the Reed Johns for a while so that he can be closer to Marley. After his aunt and uncle leave, Henry has a beer and James's mother gives the boy a tranquilizer. James' father offers to take Henry to the clinic to have his wounds tended to. Dr. Michelle Fonseil, who was overseeing the casualty department that night, receives Henry Fonbradar for treatments at a quarter to nine. She assesses the deepest of his wounds and determines that it does not need stitches. She cleans it, staples it closed, and gives him a tetanus injection, Fosele will later be asked about Henry's demeanor on the visit. She describes him as talkative, confident, relaxed, and engaging with the staff. Henry returns to the Reed John's home, and shortly after he walks back in the door, the police arrive. They want him to go to the medi clinic with them. Henry complies and accompanies the police. Dr. Fonseil is surprised to see the young man she's just treated again at a quarter to ten. This time he is accompanied by two policemen, though, and in court documents she says that she was informed that Henry was a suspect in a murder case. I don't know whether this is said in front of Henry or not, but she notes that his demeanour is now very different from when she saw him earlier. He's now quiet, and does not speak unless he is spoken to. Fonseil is asked by the police to draw a vial of blood from Henry. The blood will be tested, and no significant amounts of alcohol will be found, nor traces of drugs. In the days following the murder of the three members of the Fonbradar family, 16-year-old Mali continues to cling to life. On the orders of Colonel Benecker, she is still under armed guard and no visitors are allowed. Andre and Sonia de Toy are appointed as Miley's legal guardian, but not even this formal appointment sways Beneka to allow them to visit the girl. I can only think that this was a strategic decision on the Colonel's part. It was hoped that Miley would be able to share vital information once she fully regained consciousness and she started speaking again if indeed that happened, and the police would likely not want anything to influence her statements before they were able to talk to her. As for the armed guard, well, there was at least one murderer on the loose, and that person had tried to end this young girl's life. She was now a valuable witness, and very likely at risk of being permanently silenced if she was not protected. Police simply could not take the chance. Andre and Sonia are fed information about Miley's medical progress by telephone, but other than communicating with the police, South Africa knows almost nothing about Miley's condition at this time. Ten days after Rudy, Martin and Teresa are murdered, a memorial service is held. The family will be cremated so no coffins are present, but the service is deeply emotional for everyone. The media will say that Henry van Bradar is nowhere to be seen, but his uncle insists that he attended. On that very day, Andre receives a call from the hospital. Madly has started to move her eyes when spoken to by the staff. She appears to be regaining consciousness. Now, no longer requiring critical care, Marlee is moved to a private room in the hospital where physiotherapists and neurologists will begin the process of ascertaining just how much damage has been done. Finally, the South African public is told that Marlee is no longer in critical condition and she is responsive. A collective breath is held for what the young woman will relay about the horrific event, almost two weeks before. Soon after being moved to a private room, Miley speaks. She's able to answer easy questions. Andre and Sonia de Toy are still barred from seeing Miley, as is the rest of the family, but they learn that police have told her about the deaths of her parents and brother and that they have started speaking to her without their consent. The couple push back and make legal requests to be granted access to Mali. They also demand that their legal role as her guardians be respected and that as she is a minor, she should not be questioned by police without their consent. The legal application is granted and the aunt and uncle visit their niece for the first time since her traumatic experience. Initially, although Miley is able to move her limbs and sit up, she's only able to speak in very short sentences. It's reported that photographs of her family have been stuck on the walls of her hospital room, and she's able to identify each person by name. Henry does not appear in any of the photographs. Due to the difficulty she has in communicating, she's unable to make a full police statement, In anticipation of this, though, Andre and Sonia appoint a legal representative to ensure that the young girl's rights are protected. A photograph is released of Miley. In it, she wears a wig to cover the horrific scars on her head. Days after the announcement, she is released from hospital and moved to a rehabilitation centre. Her full recovery will be a long and arduous process. At this point, Henry has moved in with his aunt and uncle in He is described as having lost a considerable amount of weight and appears depressed and lethargic. He leaves the house so infrequently that the neighbours don't even know he's there for quite some time. The detois domestic worker will later say that she and Henry were often alone together in the house and that she hardly saw him. He would stay in his room sometimes even when guests were at the house. She described the young man sitting on his own at the pool, smoking and occasionally pouring himself a drink and then taking it to his bedroom with him. Included in the press release about Marley's condition is a mention of Henry. The family's representative says that he's doing well considering the circumstances, and they then acknowledge the rumours in the press and public domain. These rumours started not long after the murders of Martin, Teresa and Rudy, and while the police have yet to confirm that Henry is indeed a suspect, they are also not mentioning any of the intruders that they may be looking for. Very soon after the murders, Australian newspapers start to report about Henry's activities in Australia during his time there. It is at this point that the first mention is made of drugs. Sources from within the family will also say that Martin had confided in them that he'd found Dacha in Henry's room. Classmates from the University of Melbourne say that Henry was a well-known drug user, and his departure from the university was not for a gap year, as a family spokesperson had said, but rather he was suspended for drug use. It is then reported that in 2014, Henry van Breda was a patient at a drug and alcohol rehabilitation centre in Belleville. The facility, Teche Clinic, also treats patients living with serious mental health conditions. Reports of strange behaviour from the young man during his time in South Africa before the murders start to emerge a domestic worker at Desalza's estate, recalls how she accidentally bumped into Henry one day while he was roaming the estate. She'd apologised, but Henry had stood back, and she alleges he'd leered at her, and in rather colourful language, told her that he'd like to have sex with her. The woman counsels drug addicts in her spare time, and says that she immediately thought Henry may be on drugs. She says that she reported the incident to the security at the estate, who told her not to worry about Henry because the boy, quote, had always been a nutcase, end quote. The woman relays how she had all but forgotten about the incident when she saw Henry's photograph in the newspaper almost a year later and realised it was the same person. More people come out of the woodwork to share strange interactions they'd had with Henry van Breda. A local resident reports Henry and his friends arriving in the parking lot of a shopping centre. The boys piled out of the car and danced to an explicit song that they were playing from the car's sound system. The woman alleges that Henry unzipped his pants and exposed his private parts to her screaming at young women nearby about what he'd like to do to them. When the woman repeats the words he'd shouted in the parking lot, they are almost exactly the same as those the domestic worker had relayed Henry having said to her. Residents of a local informal settlement tell the media that they recognised Henry as someone who had regularly purchased drugs and been seen hanging around the streets of Stellenbosch. It's alleged that after Henry was suspended from university, he returned to South Africa with his tail between his legs. His parents, it said, tried to get him into a university here, but because of the drug allegations, he was declined entry. After he'd been released from the rehab centre, Henry is alleged to have been watched like a hawk by his parents. He suffered from insomnia, and on many occasions, Teresa had to stay awake all night watching him. Members of the carpool that drove the estate's children to Somerset College would confirm that at some point after Henry had arrived, Teresa had stopped participating in the carpool, and Martin took over her duties. Three months after the murders, A photograph is published of Henry talking to a man outside his uncle's home. The man has a horse cart with him, which is quite common in that area of Cape Town. When the media track the man down and ask what the conversation was about, he allegedly admits to having sold drugs to Henry. Then Michelle Barnard, Teresa's lifelong friend, admits that after the murders, her sons had made a confession to her. They had said that in 2013, when the Van Breda family was in South Africa on holiday and the two families had met up in Nasna, Rudy had told her sons that Henry was on drugs. The boys did not share the information with their mother at the time, but felt it pertinent to tell her after the murders. Michelle was also told by another friend she shared with Teresa That in the days leading up to the murders, Teresa and Martin had told Henry they would no longer be funding his lifestyle. The parents were acutely aware it seems that their son was still using drugs and they did not want to be paying for it. Michelle says that Teresa had not told her about Henry's drug use and she could only assume that her friend was ashamed. The Van family was by all accounts intensely private. Martin and Teresa would occasionally share some of their struggles with close family members and friends, but for the most part, they dealt with family problems inside the family. A separate and quite divergent narrative emerges about why Henry left university. One newspaper reports that the young man had undergone a brain scan at a hospital in Melbourne, and that the scan had revealed a small tumour in the boy's brain. While it was confirmed that a scan of Henry's brain was indeed done, in one report it's said to have been part of a study that one of his university friends was conducting, and in another, it was said to be part of a normal checkup. No further confirmation has been made that Henry van Breda ever had a brain tumour. I'll come back to this later, though. Another rumour that does the rounds at this time, and is also mentioned in Julian Janssen's book The De Murders, is that on the night of the murders, Henry watched a movie called Romeo Killer, the Chris Porco story. The movie was released in 2013, and tells the real-life story of Chris Parker, a 21-year-old man who was convicted of murdering his father and attempting to murder his mother with an axe. During the trial, it would be revealed that Chris had been failing at university and lying to his parents about his grades. He'd also been forging checks to steal money from his parents, and had broken into their home on several occasions to steal from them. The murders came after Chris's father threatened to cut his son off financially. Of course, the possibility that Henry could have watched this movie was deeply disturbing to the police and the South African public. The parallels between the crime in the movie and the crimes actually committed in the Funbradar household could not be ignored. I asked Julian Janssen about these claims.
0: The visuals of the Porco family murders indeed played, to my knowledge, a huge role in, I think, mentally, psychologically preparing Henry unknowingly perhaps for that murderous onslaught onto his family. And I know that Henry, he actually watched that movie of the Poco murders, ex-murders, a few times, that there were very much similarities between that murder and the eventual ex-murder. And in both murders, there was also a dog involved. And this guy, he traveled from the university to murder his father with an ex, plunging him to death and attacking his mother and maiming her. And uh, what was interesting that the mother actually refused to testify against her son. Son was caught out when while he was rushing back to university. He was caught in a speed trap and that actually that is how the police actually found him. But yes, uh, the Henry did watch that movie and I would presume that it played a huge role later.
1: So it is possible that Henry watched this movie either on the night in question or at some other stage. Julian Janssen is a seasoned and professional reporter and I have no doubt that he would not put information out into the public domain if he was not certain of his facts. Despite these rumours around Henry's possible involvement in the murders His extended family was standing by him at this point. It would emerge, though, that it must have been clear to the family and Henry from early on that he was going to be considered a suspect, as a lawyer was hired to represent him. Advocate Peter Buerta has experience in high-profile cases. He represented British millionaire and businessman Sri Devani, who was acquitted of his wife Annie's murder in 2014. Lorinda van Niekak is appointed as his briefing attorney. She'll work with Boerter should the case ever go to court. While it is certainly prudent for any person in such a position to get legal advice, it does raise questions in the public space about why such a heavy-weight attorney, who does not come cheap of course, would be needed at such an early stage. Of course, the Funbradar family was extremely well-off, so for the most part money would not be a major concern. In fact, it was this large inheritance that Henry now stood to gain that would become the major point of speculation as to motive. Marley had survived, of course, so she would now be sharing in that inheritance. Her medical fees were considerable and would be paid out of her parents' estate. Martin had established Rudell Holdings Trust when his children were born, and Rudy, Miley and Henry were the sole beneficiaries of the trust. The Fonbradar's assets were, of course, split across two countries, South Africa and Australia. It would be determined that the biggest portion of these assets was held in Australia. The estate was said to be valued at close to 200 million rand. Martin's brother, Bailey, and Teresa's brother, Andre, were made trustees of Rudal Holdings, and tasked with protecting the financial interests of Marley and Henry. When medical fees needed to be paid and attorney fees started adding up, though, the fact that the investigation was still ongoing became a problem. Martin and Teresa's life insurance policies had not been paid out, and with the bulk of the assets being in Australia, it was becoming difficult to liquidate assets into cash to pay bills. The life insurance company would not pay out, because they were unsure as to whether the assigned beneficiaries, in this case Marley and Henry, would in fact remain beneficiaries in the legal sense, as the investigation of the murders continued. In South Africa, we have a law that is colloquially referred to as the bloody hand law. This means if you're involved in the murder of a benefactor, you cannot inherit from their estate. The Van Breda and the toy families approached the police and asked them to issue a letter stating that there was no prima facie evidence to point to the involvement of Henry or Miley Van Breda in the murders of their parents and brother. The police declined to issue such a letter. Rumours begin to reach journalists' ears that perhaps the Van Braden and and Atoy families are no longer as united in their support of Henry as they once were. It's alleged that even at this stage, some family members believe that only Marley should inherit from the estate. The bloody hand rule would become a deeper question as Henry's legal costs for his expensive attorney's representation began to rack up. At this point, the attorneys were only operating in an advisory capacity. If the case did end up going to court, though, would it be fair for the estate to pay to represent Henry? After more than a month of being an inpatient at the physical rehabilitation centre, Marley von Breda has recovered enough that she could be released. Her treatment will be ongoing on an outpatient basis, and she has a long road to walk to recovery. On the day of her discharge, her appointed attorney and spokesperson makes a shocking announcement to the public. For months, everyone has wondered when and in how much detail Marley would relay the events of the attack she survived, but with this announcement, all hopes of a clear resolution are dashed. Due to the extent of the head injury Mildly suffered, she has retrograde amnesia. She has no memory of the attack that night, and her loss of memory stretches two days before the event. In the ensuing weeks and even years after this incident, there will be a huge amount of speculation that Marley did remember the events of that night. To be honest, for a long time I also thought that perhaps she did remember, and was either choosing not to share the facts because she didn't want to have to testify, or because it was unnecessary for the world to know that she did remember. After researching for these episodes, though, and going on information I've received from an anonymous source, I can confirm that Marley van Breda does not remember the events of the 27th of January 2015, and she has very little memory of the days before that as well. Retrograde amnesia occurs when there is damage or trauma of some kind to the centre of the brain that deals with the forming and storing of memories. It works in what is called a temporally graded manner, which means that it most severely affects your very recent memories. In other words, usually the reason for the injury having occurred in the first place. As you move backward in time from that point, there will be less and less impact on the memories that were formed. The extent of the amnesia depends on a few things, including the severity of the injury, as well as how long it took for a person to receive medical care. Many people have wondered whether Marlee's amnesia may have been caused by a psychological response to the trauma she experienced. There is a form of amnesia called dissociative or psychogenic amnesia, which is a purely psychological response to trauma and usually occurs in cases of very violent crimes. As to the question of whether Marley may be suffering from psychogenic amnesia, I think considering the physical brain trauma she experienced, that is unlikely. Might there be an element of her brain not wanting to remember? Yes, possibly. But most people with retrograde amnesia from serious brain trauma will never recover those memories, whether they want to or not. I think about it this way. When your body is fighting for survival, it puts all its energy into that effort. Considering a simple example of experiencing low blood pressure, for instance, your body knows that it needs to continue getting blood to all your vital organs, so it forces you to remain still by making you feel dizzy, or if you don't listen, making you pass out so that you have to lay still. This is your body's way of saying, hey, I'm struggling here and we don't really have to do all this walking and talking stuff right now. You just need to sit your butt down so that I can stay alive. When your brain experiences a traumatic injury, besides the actual physical damage that is done, there is also a process of protection that happens. Your brain will not continue to function at the same level it ordinarily does, as it understands, those functions are not totally vital at that precise moment. In a survival situation, forming memories is not a vital function. For the police, this would have been a major blow. While they were very likely not relying on Miley's witness testimony, it certainly would have made their jobs a lot easier. There are many that will say that police approached this case with blinders on, and that they were only ever focused on Henry as a suspect. I don't think that's the case. But we do have to remember that in any murder case, the people closest to the victims are always going to be looked at first. There's also, of course, the Occam's razor theory, that the simplest explanation is usually the most accurate. Henry was the only surviving and relatively unscathed member of the Funbradal family that night. He was always going to be looked at. The police would have been irresponsible if they had not looked at him first. The first point of investigation for police would be to determine whether Henry's version of events could reasonably and possibly be true. This would have been done in the hours and days immediately following the murders, as if there was indeed an indication of the possibility that anyone outside the family had committed the crimes, this would need to be looked into immediately. Henry's version, of course, was that one or two, and in some versions he said possibly three, men entered his home that night and attacked his family with an axe and then attacked him with a knife. There is, of course, the matter of the three missing hours between approximately 4 a.m. when he says the attacks occurred, and approximately 7 a.m. when he called emergency services. During this time, Henry claimed that he was unconscious, but we'll deal with that aspect a little later. In order for police to determine whether intruders could reasonably and possibly have attacked the family, they had to see whether it was possible for them to gain entry, and more importantly, whether it was likely that these intruders had gained entry. Possibility is one thing, anything is possible, and with enough force, insight and planning, it's possible to gain entry anywhere. We cannot say that it is not possible that intruders gained entry to the De estate. We can, and the police had to, Look at the evidence of the probability of this having happened. The Dalsallers estate is what is referred to as a medium security estate. The security manager at the time of the attacks was Marcia Rousseau. She had been hired in February 2014, just one month before the Fumbradar family had moved into the estate. When she took over, she made improvements to the security features at the estate. At the time of the attacks, the estate was ringed by an electric fence. The fence was linked to an alarm, which would go off if it was touched or damaged in any way. There are also security beams in areas where access may be gained from the outside, as well as surveillance systems, which are monitored 24 hours per day in a remote location in Paro. The estate also has security guards, who regularly patrol on a rotational basis. Several areas of the electric fence also had an anti-dig foundation, so it was not possible to go under the gates either. The vehicle access points are manned, and the other possible access points in the estates, such as the mouth of the river that runs through the estates, is protected by barbed wire and electric fencing. There were also thermal cameras that would pick up heat signatures of human beings or large animals if they came within 20 metres of the estate's fence. If an alarm was activated anywhere on the estate, the control room in Paro would send one of the on-site guards to investigate, and the alarm would only be cancelled and reset once confirmation had been received that no incident had occurred. 12 Korske Street was located, as I've previously mentioned, in the middle of the estate. It is 1.23 kilometres from the main gate, 2.43 kilometres from the river, and 1.6 kilometres from the entrance to the neighbouring airfield. At the time of the incident, police did find a small open section between the airfield entrance and the electric gate. This entrance did have a camera on it, and surveillance from the day before and the day of the incident show no movement through that opening. Despite all of this security, police did uncover that in the period from January 2013 to February 2014, there were five attempts to gain entry to the Dizalza estate by breaching the perimeter. In all five cases, the alarms were activated. Guards were dispatched and the attempts were foiled. In the period from February 2014 to February 2015, ten cases were reported to the Stellenbosch police station from within the estate. One case was of housebreaking, and the other nine cases were theft. In the case of housebreaking, the police attending the scene were unable to find any evidence of forced entry. all the perimeter of the estate having been breached, and it was believed that the perpetrator gained access by registering at the guardhouse and was in the estate for other purposes when the housebreaking occurred. The nine cases of theft were all believed to have been committed by workers in the estate or employees from removal companies. On the night preceding and the morning of the murders, no alarm activations were received by by the de estate security. The last sign-in at the main access gate was at 23.57 on the evening of the 26th of January 2015. There was CCTV footage of comings and goings near the restaurant and lodge area of the estate, which is some distance from Korska Street, and is also on the other side of the river. The residents of Khoska Street and the surrounding streets were questioned, and none reported seeing any suspicious vehicle or people in the estates around the time of the murders. The security guards on the estates ran five full perimeter checks, between 6pm on the 26th and 7am on the 27th. They also ran three additional spot checks throughout the estate, with the last check being at 2.50am on the 27th. There were, however, four alarms on the offence that night and that morning that were what the security company refers to as not true alarms. These are alarms that are determined to be caused by something other than attempted access, due to the level of the breach. This could include a tree branch touching the fence a large piece of litter blowing into it, or something similar. Of the four not-true alarms, only one was located in the zone closest to Korska Street, and this happened at 7.30pm on the night of the 26th. The last not-true alarm was in a different zone at 3.36am on the morning of the 27th, an hour before Henry says he and his family were attacked. There were no further alarms after that. So it seems clear that although it is not impossible that intruders had gained entry to the estate by breaching the perimeter, it is improbable. If the not true alarms were actually recording people breaching the perimeter, that would mean they would have had to have entered at one point and exited at another, which seems unlikely and risky. The times also don't allow for anyone to have both entered and exited the estate on the not-true alarms. If the 336 alarm had indeed been caused by an intruder entering, then how did they get out of the estate? Cases, of course, are not built on one single aspect, and they must be considered on the totality of evidence, so what else would the police need to look at to either support or refute the possibility of an intruder or intruders having committed the attack? If we look at the possibility of these intruders being motivated by theft, and having chosen the Van Breda house randomly, we have to ask ourselves why nothing was stolen. This was a wealthy family, There were laptops on the dining room table and expensive electronics all around the house. Nothing was taken. If it was a random robbery, we also have to consider why out of all the houses in the estate, intruders would have chosen one smack bang in the middle, and also one that looked pretty similar to the others in the street. Most of the houses in the De estate did not have security bars on the windows, It was a hot night and many residents would have had their windows open at least slightly. We know that the family opposite number 12 had their windows slightly open and it was visible from the street. So what would make an intruder stand in the middle of Korske Street, look at two houses that were virtually identical and go into one and not the other? What would then make those intruders enter the home and instead of stealing anything, pick up an axe and a knife, go upstairs, and slaughter the sleeping residents. Police were able to confirm that both weapons had come from the house. The domestic workers and several other witnesses confirmed that the Van family had kept an axe that looked very much like the murder weapon, either in the garage, next to the fireplace, or in the scullery. The domestic workers confirmed that they had last seen the axe in the scullery. This is the same scullery that is less than a metre from the drawer from which the knife was taken. No other drawers or cupboards were open in the kitchen when police took hold of the scene, just the drawer that contained the knives. So back to that weight of probabilities. What would be the probability of an intruder Who had initially come to steal and suddenly developed murderous intentions, finding an axe in a scullery and then picking exactly the right drawer where the knives were kept. Although we can all but discount the probability that an intruder may have gained access to the estate that night, I haven't seen anyone question the fact that there were already a couple of hundred people legally inside the estate. They lived there. There are approximately 75 houses in De Salza estate. If each of those houses has just three residents, that's 225 people that didn't have to gain access by breaching the perimeter, they were already inside the perimeter. Martin Frambradar was a well-known and extremely successful businessman. Although no one had anything unkind to say about him after his death, and he was for the most part seen as an ethical and fair businessman, you don't get to have 200 million rands net worth without at least one person having a problem with you. For every business deal that is won, someone loses. That's just the way business works. Martin was involved in the security industry with the NETSTAR tracking device. He was also involved in the property business and in the private education sector. While the security industry is actually well known for often having some underhanded dealings, this is more from a personal protection standpoint, and not on the security devices side, which is where Martin had been involved. In the private education industry, there are not many known links to organised crime or anything of the like. The property industry, while being cutthroat in a financial sense, is not known to result in hits, and the bulk of his business in this industry was in Australia. Martin Van Breda's business affairs were looked into by police. I also asked Julian Jansen if he was aware of anything in Martin's background that could have led to someone wanting him dead. This is what he had to say.
0: No, um, investigations, there wasn't a lot to be done into Martin Van Brda. He was clean in every way. He was a cool-headed, hard-working, very clever businessman. So I think his intentions were pure, but we never came across anything that would suggest that he was involved in any any dodgy business dealings and that would suggest that uh, there was a hit on him or his family and that per- perpetrator was ordered by a syndicate perhaps to have a hit on the family
1: let's just say for the sake of fairness that someone did want martin van bradar dead and a hit was put out on his life unless the the hit men were complete novices it would seem very unlikely that they would go to the house without a weapon. It would also be highly unlikely that they would risk taking on the entire family if they just wanted Martin. And then these highly professional hitmen, who saw fit to axe an entire family to death, put down the main weapon and fought a 20-year-old boy with a knife. They became so overwhelmed by this knife fight they all fled the house while being chased by the boy. As I mentioned, there are approximately 225 people living inside D'Zolza Estate. All of those people could have committed the crime and fled back to their houses. Neighbourly disputes can sometimes turn deadly, but I think it's a pretty large stretch to believe that one of the Funbradars' neighbours hated this family, who'd lived in the estate for less than a year so much that they waited until the early hours of the morning, risked being seen by any number of other residents, pinned their hopes on weapons being available inside the house, and then slaughtered the entire family, but were scared off by the very last surviving victim. With the police having investigated the intruder possibility, and feeling confident that they would be able to refute this in a court of law, they turned to the physical evidence left behind in the home, and it told a story all on its own. Sadly, the story of the physical evidence is going to have to be told in Part 3. With all the victim's injuries, physical evidence on the scene, and the fact that I have info from Captain Marius relay, there is just... Far too much to go through now. I will do my best to get Part 3 out to you as soon as possible, and you can follow the show on social media to get updates. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Until then, as always, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon.